Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Lindsay, and this is Pitch List. Based on the response of our episode in Season 2 with Missy Gallimore, I asked my friend Ben Vaughn to come on the show and give us his insights into the publishing world. We talked about everything from streaming to what he looks for in the writers he signs. Ben started in publishing even before he graduated from Belmont University. He's worked in several publishing companies, including EMI and Warner Chapel, where he is now the current president and CEO. He's a smart, down-to-earth, and very successful guy, and he has some invaluable advice for anyone looking to sign with a publishing company. Here's Ben Vaughn. Good afternoon. Here in Pitchless land, we've got a very special guest today, somebody... um, We've had several people request this episode uh, over the last year and a half, and I was finally uh, able to track him down, get him to agree to this. I'm really excited today to have Ben Vaughn uh, from Warner Chapel Music. Let me get it straight. Let me get it, let me get it official. Ben Vaughn is the president and CEO of Warner Chapel Music Nashville. How are you, Ben? I'm good, Chris. It's good to it's good to see you over this video. Yes, it is. It is good to see you too. We uh, before I started recording, we talked about you guys are all working at home now uh, until at least January. You said that's right. Well, um, has that limited you anyway, or do you think it's working okay for you guys? How much time we got, Chris? (laughs) Right. Okay. It's a loaded question. I mean. We're, I get the, the answer is we're making it work. Um, mm-hmm. When you, when you uh, test the human and creative spirit, you find people, they try, to, they try to figure things out and they get really flexible and they, and they rise to the occasion. So um, we've all figured out a way to, like, to do the music business remotely. Um, and as you know, in Nashville, like, that's the number one community-based music industry in the world, right? So... It's, uh, I don't think, I don't think many of us like it because it's, it's much more enjoyable to, to be in our community working, you know, together with each other. That's what we're all used to, but, um, we're making it work. That's a great point, man. That is one of the great things about this town. When you move here, um, it is so personable and it is a community unlike other big cities that do music that are a little more disjointed. You're you're absolutely right. I when I try to when I try to explain Nashville to people that aren't familiar, you know, I always kind of say the same thing. It's like what other business, you know, basically um, develops and exports all of its product out of effectively about three streets uh, right outside of downtown Nashville. You know, like yeah, exactly. Hundred percent of the country music that goes out to the world is made in Nashville, Tennessee. So. It, it just makes a, a very special community. So I think for myself, you know, as we're taping this, we're about five months in, um, you know, I really miss the elements of community that, that we get to enjoy 
just being part of the Nashville music community. Yep, I do too. I know everyone does. Um, We'll get there. We're probably in one of the toughest parts right now. Just Mm -hmm. the reality of it is setting in, you know, that it is, it is difficult and it's hard on people, you know, even when everything's going right and you're being safe and you figured out how to work from home, it's still, I think it's very, uh, it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I would love to go ahead and start and go back a little bit and talk about your journey. So we kind of get some context. Now I met you at when you were at big tractor with for Scott Hendricks, I think you had just maybe gotten hired. You eventually ran Big Tractor. But, mm-hmm. and you had you, I mean, I, when I first met you, you looked like you were 14. Um, <laughs> you still look like you're 22, but um, I'm assuming you were right out of Belmont. Is that right? Yeah, I don't look like I'm 22, but I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I was actually kind of, you're kind of correct there. I was actually still in Belmont when I got the opportunity to, to run Big Tractor, which was in, um, very small publishing company at the time had three songwriters um just a crazy opportunity that i was blessed with that i was able to you know work really hard and um you know i i I still remember a lot of those great chris Lindsay, amy mayo songs back in the day working with uh the the fine folks at api right um that was one of your earlier publishers yeah um that's right that was my first publisher that's right. And I remember like, it's funny, you know, I've done this, this is my 26th year on Music Row, but um, I uh, I still remember a lot of those songs so well. Like I remember a song you and Marv had called Mama Bought a Hog. Oh my God. Uh, classic, right? Oh my God. I can't believe you remember that. Totally. Um, I remember <laughs> one of my first cuts, just because I'm connected to your family. Um, one of my first cuts I got early on was a Faith Hill cut that Amy wrote, uh, Amy and Marv wrote, and I played it over a telephone to Dan Huff uh, so he could hear it and he cut it. So, um, Amy Wow, got, I didn't know that. Was that, um, what was that song called? I know which one called you're talking Me. Me, that's right. Mm-hmm. And oh, you, yeah, played it to, you played it to Dan on the phone. Yeah, I called him and I was like, we just got this new song, it's a hit. I said, if you want to hear it. Um, and in full disclosure, I knew it was going to go to another artist besides faith and um i thought it was perfect for faith and i said if you want to hear it like you, you got to hear it today and he said well well can you play it for me over the phone and i was like sure so i just remember that held the phone up to the speaker you listen to the whole thing he said can i put that on hold yes and it was cut maybe a few weeks later wow but yeah. it was intended for another or had they thought they might pitch it to the other artist? Or yeah, there was other? one of the other one of the other publishers was thinking about pitching it to someone else. So, um, and then there's another one. Sorry, you, you kind of I love it. Go triggering my memory. So if this is helps helps some of your audience understand how uh, some of the publishing things work. But um, so this is going to date us all. But we were still pitching on cassettes. Yeah. At that point, okay, and. Amy had written a song with Marv, who I was working with, that I loved. And we pitched it all over the place. It was called It's Always Something. Yep. And uh, there was a producer in town named Don Cook. He was a very successful producer at the time. He did Brooks and Dunn, Terry Clark, Lone Star. Um, but he was affiliated with another with a publishing company. Okay. Okay. 
So the rumor was always, well, you can't get a cut on this guy unless the song is affiliated with the publishing company, right? Don would never take meetings, nothing. Okay. He had that rep. He did. That's right. And I was, um, I, man, I was young. I was early twenties at the time. And I decided I was going to, I wanted to get a cut with Don Cook and I was going to, damn it. I was going to figure out a way to get a cut with Don Cook. And so I just decided that I would give him one song every week. So every week I had in my calendar, like give Don Cook a song. Okay. And I did a few, a few months into that, he calls me on the phone and he says, Hey, I like this. It's always something song. And he, of course I didn't know him. He never called me before. I said, he's like, can I put it on hold? Can I play it for, um, for Joe Diffie? Uh, the late great Joe Diffie. And he said, and I said, of course. So he did and he cut it and it ended up being, I think it was a top five record. Um, so that was, that was a, at the time, you know, young publisher getting a cut off of a dropped off cassette uh, with a producer that's notoriously known for not cutting a lot of oh. outside songs. That was just like threading the needle to the oh. nth degree. Right? That, and just so the audience knows what he's saying is that's like David and Goliath. <laughs> the, the, you know, Ben was new guy. Okay. New, yeah. new guy. There were other pluggers that had been in town doing this for years, you know, the, and they couldn't get to him. That w that was like bringing home a very big kill right there. Yeah. Very big. That's yeah. th that, that was like almost impossible to do. Um, that's crazy. You're taking me back now. Yeah, man. We had, and we had the March project. Yep. That, and I think that was a, uh, I don't know if you ever talked about the March project on your podcast or not, but um, I think we did. We had Bill and Marv on one time and me and I will, Amy. I will say that was I, from my, from my opinion, that was one of the first, what I call branded marketed projects in Nashville. Um, and it, those were fun to be a part of, you know? And I don't know that we knew we were doing the branding part. I think y'all, I think you guys who were, yeah, running, we did. you guys knew, we were just trying to, honestly, we were all frustrated and, you know, we were hitting things here and there, but we were all, you know, we were brand new and all like, you know, you know, it is low on the food chain, you know? And I think it was more frustration for us and just wanting to do something we loved. Totally. And so let's talk more about you now. So, and then, so you're a big tractor. Did you go to EMI after big tractor or did you do something in between? No, I went to EMI directly after, but I started a big tractor. I got the chance to, to run that company. When I was 21, which was nuts. No, I know. I told them you, it was yeah. like, I thought you were, I really, I thought you were like 16. <laughs> I, I, like, who is this kid and how is he doing all this? Well, they gave me the opportunity just because I had been, I'd been the intern and uh, had just, you know, worked, just worked like a, a full-time creative person pitching songs. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I, and I kind of still use that mentality now. It's like, just show up, keep your head down, nose to the grindstone. Like, you know, I, I like to think no one can outwork me. That's absolutely true. It was, it was a, for me, it was a really hard decision to leave that company um, because I loved it and we had done really well. I was there about six years. Um, it just, I, I needed for me at the time, like I went from, I went directly from there to EMI to answer your question from earlier right but i knew that like i needed to make my decisions based on what i could learn and i, I had had a great experience at an independent publisher and 
really, you know, learned things like how to do a contract with a writer and how to work with uh, publishing administration and just, just a lot of the, the bones of the music publishing business that if you're just doing creative, you're not going to necessarily get that experience. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I was kind of self-taught in a lot of ways. And so I got the chance to go to EMI Publishing, which at the time was one of the largest publishers in Nashville. And I got to work for um, a gentleman named Gary Overton. Yep, who, Gary O. Who yeah, Gary O, who basically just, you know, offered to teach me everything that he knew. Um, and I just thought, what an opportunity to kind of see publishing from the global spot. So anyway, that was a tough, that, that was a hard, that was hard to, to leave that situation. And, but I went to EMI, uh, I can't think of what year that would have been now. I guess 2002 was when mm-hmm. I went to EMI and I was running their creative department when I started there. Yeah. And then Gary moved from there to uh, Joe's old job at RCA, right? That's or right. BNA, whatever, Sony now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you didn't go with him. He, you, you stayed know, he, to run EMI when he went over yeah, there, right? And you became was, the head. For me, that was kind of a, you know, a pivotal moment. Yeah. You know, pivotal moments in our lives. And I loved working with Gary and we had a great team at EMI, like just awesome people and um, just the best writers and a lot of success. And, you know, I think, I can't speak for Gary, but I think he was ready to try something different and like a different uh, part of the business. Um, and so he decided to go to the record label, um, to run a record label. So for me, that kind of left me there and I was 34 at the time. And I remember thinking, you know, my, I'd always wanted the the opportunity to run a major publisher, but are they going to let me do this? Yeah. That's that just so that people listening, that's kind of unheard of. That chair is usually uh, filled by someone in their fifties, really. Right. At at least, you know, it's a a big chair. Yeah. Thank you um, for saying that. But my, you know, my bosses at the time, they, they believed that I could do it and they gave me that chance. So oh, and you uh, killed it. You guys did amazing. We, that was a lot, man. That was a lot of fun. Really a lot of fun. Now, did you ever entertain the idea going to the label when you said Gary wanted something new? I totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I've been in publishing my entire career, right? So I feel like it suits me well. So no, yeah. I was, I was very happy to, to stay at EMI and, um, you know, and, and get that opportunity. Well, and you have such a, and I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't see it as much anymore. And I don't know if it's just how the business has changed, but you know, people that knew how to handle writers, you know, and not just handle them, but how to get the best out of them. And it seems like, you know, and I'm sure you have a great staff, um, and actually, I know some of your staff, and they are incredible. But there's less now of people that like you who really, you know, how to work with people that that do this. It's a, well, it's a it's a thing. Yeah, I think I hear what you're saying. I think part of the reason for that is is the contraction of the music business. Okay, and what I mean by that is um, the music business took such a downturn over such a long period of time what we what we miss what we we, um the consequence of that was there wasn't people a lot of people that were joining the music business as a career you know because there wasn't enough either there weren't enough open jobs or enough companies 
to really um, make it so there's like a deep bench throughout the music business, right? So I think with the industry, overall industry has been rising. We're going to forget about this little thing called COVID for a minute, okay? Yeah. But but has been rising over the past few years, kind of bouncing, starting to bounce back. Um, I think you're you'll see more more opportunity for people um, and more diversity of people to join the industry, right? So I think part of this is like when you say there's not as many people that knew how to handle writers, there just wasn't as many people, you know, because right. of the interaction right. of, of a business. And so I'm, I love, thanks for saying good things about our team because we, we have an awesome team. At you Water do. Travel you do. We just, you know, good people that enjoy, enjoy working together and they, they do it for the right reasons. And, um, but yeah, it's, I, I think, you know, when you get this, uh, this little COVID problem fixed, but um, the health of the music industry in terms of like, do people value music and do they, do they need music? That's proven, you know, hundred times over. So, um, you know, we've, we're watching, I don't know how technical you want to get, but we're watching country music consumption go up in COVID. Like it's up 21%. Wow. No, I love this. So is that yeah. in uh, streaming or radio revenue or all across yeah, the board? That, or That would be more in like consumption and more digital. Okay. Um, you know, so that's mostly good news. I mean, if there's any bad news there is that country usually lags behind the other genres mm-hmm. in terms of like, like adoption of technologies and those sorts of things. So our streaming numbers have not been as big as some of the other genres, but they're, but they're the highest growth of any, of any genre. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. So that's, that's, that kind of gives me a lot of hope for the future. I mean, there's another, another podcast about, um, uh, streaming rates and songwriters and all this other stuff sure. that, uh, that take, could take us down a rabbit hole, but th- there's a lot of improvements that can be had on that side of the equation. But, um, but in general, in terms of like, is there a demand for country music? Do people love country music? Yes, that's there. You can yep. see it. Yep. And I always say that when I hear negative things, people love music as much as they ever did. And we have to figure out a way to make that work because they do. It's not like we have a product that people don't want. They do. It's just figure out the proper distribution, the proper, you know, income sharing. Here, I, I had a question come to me and we, won't, we will not go down that rabbit hole, but as a publisher, is there a percentage now between your streaming revenue versus the traditional way of what you would make from radio? Right. See, I know you still have radio, but is it 50-50 now or is streaming still a much smaller part of your total pie? I see. Um, I think it depends on how you're, how, which pie you're looking at, right? So I think if you're looking at a, let's say an individual songwriter, mm-hmm. then um, yeah, traditional radio is still the biggest driver of income. Right. Okay? And so if your pie chart, I, I, everybody's pie chart would look different, right? So let's say maybe, you know, 70% of that is traditional radio and maybe now, you know, 10, 15% of that is streaming and that's chugging up more like that's growing. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then the remainder is like sync, you know? Okay. But you know, I think the good news is it's being shown that people like consumers listen to music at all different formats and all different forms. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So the way I look at the music business today and in the future, it's just about you want your song in as many ear holes as possible. Because <laughs> every time a song goes into someone's ear, there's a, a royalty generated, you know? Right. And that's the real good news in terms of like, you know, we were dealing with piracy for such a long time. And that was the the massive drag of why the business continued to yeah. lose value, right? Yeah, that was so a big thing. Not, it's really not... A pro- I mean, it still happens, but it's not a a problem in any way, shape, or form the same way, right? Anyway, hope hope that answers your question. No, that's perfect. I have one. I have a. Um, we got a lot of interest in your in your uh, interview, so Dana gave me. I've got five questions here that were submitted by listeners. We'll get to that in a second. I had a few more of my own, and I'm trying to imagine the. You know, I always try to ask questions if I think of who's listening to the podcast. Um, and I think a question I would have uh, would be, who, you know, now I understand you're, you're running a big company now. And I know that you probably don't plug as much as you wish you could plug and you, cause you have to administrate also, but I know you're involved in all of this. Um, for a new writer who's, who, who you're being pitched a new writer, are there, are there a couple things that you look for in that writer that would be tells that, you know, now, and they may or may not possess a hit song when they walk into your office, right? And even if they did, I think you would probably shake them out for some other things too. Um, what would be a couple key things that you look for when you're looking for a, a writer to sign? Okay, so it's two two part answer. Okay, number one, uh, you had said you know I may not get to pitch as much anymore, you know, which is true, but. I, I made myself a promise whenever I got the chance to run a major company that I would never lose the ability to understand why things were being recorded on the row. Right. So I, I, I very specifically keep myself in the mix. And I always tell people like, I can't, I can't pitch in a volume way, but I can, I can take some sniper shots and be effective. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how I do it. Um, so um, but on the, on the signing side, you know, you know, so my role now is, is to run the, run the office. And so I lean really heavily on our team. Right. But I do listen to everything that we, we think about signing because I need to feel good about the reason why we're spending our money and resources on our time. Um, now that being said, like if somebody on our team wants to sign something and maybe I don't get it. It's fine. We're going to sign it because we because we believe in that person that's on our team, you know. Right. But um, what we're looking for for like what I'm always looking for is, I guess the easiest way for me to say it is like, it's not about the one song that a songwriter is going to write. It's about the hundreds of songs they're going to write. And so, I'm always looking for someone that I can really see a common thread of of talent in. So when we're looking at signing a writer, especially like a new writer, I want to listen to a lot of music. And then because what, I, and what I'm looking for is just that thread of talent and uniqueness along, of, of, among a body of work. Because, you know, as you know, in Nashville, you know, co-writing in sessions win the day, right? And so you have to be able to figure out like what people are doing in those sessions. Right. So, um, I like to listen to a lot uh, and then, and then, but, and I find that when I do that, 
I usually can tell like, okay, I think this is somebody that has the true gift of being a, a songwriter and they could be that songwriter for, you know, 20, 30 years in a career. Cause that's kind of what I'm always looking for. If it's, if it's just a song, it's not the right reason. Yeah. Yeah. I get yeah. that. Yeah. Because like you said, who knows how the song was acquired number mm -hmm. one and right. number two, it just doesn't give you even, I think I'm asking, but songwriters are like artists also. And they have a, you know, every writer has a voice. And like you said, that unique take or voice that you see the thread of yeah. is what you're going to market really. That's right. And you, and I think you also have to think about from a marketing standpoint, you know, there's a, a bunch of elements that, that go into being a successful songwriter and key among them is the talent that writer possesses always like that is the, the most important driver. But beyond that, it's all the other stuff, right? Sure. And, yeah. And, and you have to think about if I'm going to work with this person and any publisher that works with a writer means that they're putting their personal reputation alongside that writer. Right. So you have to see the writer as someone that can be networked and they can be put into a lot of different situations with a lot of different people and how they can, you know, everyone's different, but, but how they're going to be able to handle that. And so I think the publishing role is a lot of coaching, especially um, early days. Don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. All right, so I'm going to move into these. I think the listeners had great questions, so we're going to start going through them. Is that cool? Let's do it. Here's the first one. Please tell us your thoughts on setting up a, quote, great room. How do you get the right people in the room to give your writer the best chance of success? So are we taking it from the standpoint of we have this, we have a songwriter, mm -hmm. and then how do we set up that session, what we're looking for? Is that right, kind of right, yes. So... I think it's a nuanced answer, but the first one is you, you got to know your writer. Um, and so you got to start there. So you have to know who you think they're going to gel with very well um, and what their strengths are. Right. Right. So if, if I have a writer who is a, maybe lyrics aren't that high on their talent list, Right. Right. And, and you got to just know what they do. And, and you would obviously want to put them with maybe a bit more lyrical based writer. You know, what's their proficiency around, um, you know, uh, doing tracks. Right. What's their uh, what's really their vocal ability? You know, so. Um, I mean, all of those are elements of yeah. bringing it together. And then then you kind of got to go with your gut feel of you know, kind of reference back to what I was saying earlier about listening to a lot of songs. Um, when you're listening to those songs, you know, you're kind of seeing patterns and, and threads and, you know, kind of what that writer is doing with other different writers, you know? So, um, so you take your best shot <laughs> with putting up a good, putting up a good room and you see what the results are. But yeah, and there's there's that, a lot of mojo. There's a lot of mojo yeah, in it. A it's a creative. Mojo. It's a creative thing, just like writing, right? Yeah. yeah. If you get, I mean, you can really have the two of the best personalities 
in the same room. And for some reason they just don't, they don't click. And um, so there is some of it that's, you got to just try it and see what happens. I mean, that, that's definitely part of it. Um, I, I, I have found over the years, I'm trying to think the best way to say this, but um, if you have, uh, you're familiar with like a silverback gorilla, like how sure. they act, act, how they act in the wild. Yep. You don't want to put a couple of those guys together. Correct. <laughs> right. We always so, called, we always called them lead dogs. You can only yeah, have one lead dog in the room or you're going to have a problem. Yeah. Something like that. So, you know, it's like, you never want to put maybe two lead dogs in the room with an artist because they may just run all over them, you know? So you just, again, know your writer, know your audience. Those are always the, the, the key starting points. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. All right, here we go. Here's number two. Let's see. What do you do with the songs that are less commercially viable yet amazing works of art? <laughs> um, so what do we do with the works of art versus the commercial songs? Is that the question? Yeah, like if there's what if someone turns in a song that's not so commercial but it's amazing. Right. Well, you you pitch them. I mean, that's the thing and you but you recognize I'm going to give you a nuanced answer here. You recognize that by pitching a song, and to me what that means is it's a song that the way they've put the idea together, layered against the melody, just your jaw drops open, right? It's a work of art song. Um, You pitch them because they do get cut every once in a while. And then even when they don't get cut, and this is the key part, whoever you're playing that song for, if you're sending them music and the, that, that the song is just jaw-droppingly good for an artistic reason, that will make that writer look good, right? Yeah, what are, so you, that, that's right. Right, so you may, yep. not, you may not get a cut out of it, right? But it, it can be a positive moment for the writer anyway. And then there are those songs that do get cut. I think, uh, I'm thinking what's in my head is, you know, back in the day when I was at EMI, I worked with this really awesome guy named uh, John Paul White, right? Yeah. And then you yeah. guys did some work together as well. And, yep. you know, songs like Poison and Wine happen. Yep. Right? And yeah. so, right? And so songs like that, I mean, those are just brilliant works of art, you know, that are out into the, out into the world. So. That's, thank you for saying that, number one. And it's such a great thing because it is true. When people write things that maybe they don't, you're pitching it for somebody, but, but they don't have a slot. They're looking for a specific slot on their record. But anybody who does this, who's good at it and who's passionate, they'll hear that song and go, well, I don't need that song, but what the hell is that? Who did that? Can you know what, what's interesting, you know, Chris? What's Something that? else about this has thought of this. So one of our younger... Uh, team members at Warner Chapel um, on their Instagram stories of the day had poison and wine. Wow. Yeah. It's just like, what an amazing song. I love this song. Right. And I just think that's part of the magic of, of um, being in the song world is, is, you know, there are these things that can come into the world that just, you know, are timeless. And then it's fun to watch people discover them years later like that. You know, Mm -hmm. this is one of our, our team members, I think she's in her, you know, early twenties. So. Well, that's again, thank you for, but you know what? Um, That song poison and wine, and you know, I've been lucky to be on some big songs and stuff you've pitched and, 
you know, with Marv and through the years, we've, we've had some big hit, multiple week number one hits. But right now, I get as much love off of Poison and Wine as I do anything, you know, and even though it wasn't a radio hit. Yeah. You know, writing with him is just like, a, it's like getting a birthday present. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, and by the way, if our, the birthday present for us at, at the office would be another Poison and Wine. So, you know, no pressure. No, we, <laughs> you never know. I mean, and he, that's a great answer to this question because that, you know, you guys, how long was, I mean, it was like years that he wrote for you guys at EMI. Yeah. And absolutely. he wasn't getting a lot of action, but you guys kept him on because he was, he was amazing. <laughs> Just amazingly talented and, and still is. And so. still is. And that's a great thing for the listeners to hear because I've known many publishers who really championed great artists who weren't commercially successful in the beginning. Okay, we're moving on. Um, what do you do if you're, it says artist, but I think mean they mean writer. What do you do if your artist or writer wants to do something you don't think is a good idea? <laughs> um. You let them do it unless, unless there is a extremely damaging reason for them not to do it. You know, I think it's, it's just about, again, it always goes back to know your writer, know your audience and, and kind of pick your battles too, you know, because I, I think there's a, there's an art of, of trying to help creative people. And when I say creative people, you can, that's all across the spectrum. I mean, there are songwriters that are, extremely business minded. And then there are songwriters that, you know, any hint of business is the biggest turnoff imaginable to them. Right. And then everything in between. So I hate to kind of give you the same answer, but it, it really is know your writer. Um, I think it's a great answer. Yeah. But personally, I, I think if somebody wants to do something or try it and you don't think it's going to damage them, right. You should let them do it. I think that's a great answer. I'm moving on. Let's see. We got, we know there are great writers here in Nashville. So why aren't the songs better? I guess they mean on the radio, maybe. I mean, that's, that's such a subjective comment. I agree. Because everyone has an opinion, right? So, and, and it's music. And so therefore everyone will have an opinion about every song. Right. Uh, but I think what I always look towards is any piece of music that's out into the public especially if it's out through a traditional record label situation, you know, the amount of people that were involved in those choices and, and I'm talking choices all the way down to when you're recording them in the studio and who was your mix engineer, like, like just a million choices for every piece of music that comes into the public, right. All the back yep. down to the writer room, like, did we, do we put a bridge on this? Do we not? Right. All, all of the things that have to come together. The, there was a reason <laughs> that that piece of music came out into the world. Right. Right. And there was a reason by a lot of people, you know, by the, maybe the, the A&R staff or the marketing and then the marketing staff and then the promotion staff and the artist management. Like there are a lot of people involved in these things. So, I never, I mean, I, tr I personally don't get critical around like what comes out into the world because there's so many people that are putting their best intentions forward to yeah. have things into the world. And I don't know. That's how I always view it. No, I think you're right. And I think that you just have to recognize when you hear things that aren't your cup of tea, that's all it is. They're not your cup of tea. It's well not said. a, 
it's not a good or bad. You know, and I've heard this said, and it has a negative connotation, but not really if you think about it. Vanilla is the most popular flavor of ice cream. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's probably one of my favorite parts of my job um, has been, and it's funny you say ice cream is the analogy because I always say the same thing. It's like, but I look at the whole ice cream store. And so when I think about our, our team and our roster and what the talent we get to work with, you know, we, we don't need all vanilla on the, in our, in our store either. Right. So, um, you know, we need some, some Rocky road. Yep. I have one question for you. I, I've written down. I do want to ask you the percentage of your roster of writers that are artists and pure writers. Okay. Not exactly, just roughly. I mean, I, I can give you my answer to that and it might yeah. surprise you. Um, 100% of our roster are artists. And why I say that is I truly believe that every songwriter is their own artist. Okay. That's a good answer. It's because, and because I just, it's true. It's true because everybody, the way they were made and the way they approach life is different. And for a person to go into a room every day and come out with, you know, a unique new piece of work and art is mind blowing to me still to this day. And you can only do that if you are your own artist. So I, I, I view every songwriter as their own artist. Yeah. I love the answer. I love it. Um, I want to do this and I know it's a little cliche, but I think it'll get us in a good area. Say you just moved to town or you're thinking about moving to town. You've been here a few years. You're, you're banging around trying to get your thing going. What's your advice to those people? How, um, what would, and I like to look at it this way. What would a new writer need to do to prepare themselves to be signed by someone like you? (sighs) Okay. There's, there's quite a few steps to your question. Okay. So I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. Um, first I think the writer has to be very honest with themselves. Okay. And they have to think and think, think into the future and they have to be very comfortable with the concept of making a new song every day. And, and, and right there to me is like the, the, the first barrier to entry. Okay. Okay. So if you can't, if, if just hearing me say that, if it terrifies you, you probably don't need to try to be a song, a full-time songwriter, mm-hmm. right? If it invigorates you, then maybe you do. Um, because I mean, the job is to write new material constantly. That's the job, right? So that's, to me, that's always step one. It's like, you got to be honest with yourself and you got to be self-evaluate. It's like, is this how I want to spend my time? And, um, if that's a yes, then you go for it, you know? Now, then you add on things like, how do I deal with rejection? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And and you have to recognize that you're going to hear no about 98% of the time. And that's even if you're successful, right? And so you're, you're doing this for that 2% of yes, that turns into songs that become timeless. Okay. So you have to be honest and those two criteria have to be met or, or I don't think you should embark upon this as a career. And not only rejection, but 
having it not affect your creative output. Ooh, so true. So true. And I'll tell you, I don't want this to sound negative, so I'm going to give a little positivity within that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been blessed to get to do this for a while now, so I've seen a lot of different things in the business. And, you know, I've seen Hall of Fame songwriters, and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of Hall of Fame songwriters, which is just the best. Um, But I've seen, you know, people like that sell their song catalogs, right? Or, or look at selling their song catalogs. And what I always find fascinating is the best of the best, best of the best, right? When you look at a body of work, man, if, if, if 5% of the songs that they have written in their career were significantly earning songs, they're doing great. Right? Oh yeah. Oh my so, God. 5% right? would be right. the upper echelon right. of any writers. Right. And that's so a I'm, small I'm, club. Yeah. I'm giving you hall of fame numbers. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, so I guess what I'm, my point is like when you're getting that 95% rejection rate, right. Yeah. Just know that it's okay. And, yeah. and that doesn't mean that you're not going to be in the hall of fame one day because you could be in great company. Um, you know, but I do think I always try to like tell people those kind of stats because if that can dissuade you, don't don't jump in the water. Yeah, you you just have to stick to it, man. There's the one way you don't make it's quit. You can't hear you can't hear the word no, like you right. just you you can't pro like you or not let it affect you. And that's kind of like how I have you my my job as a publisher. It's like well, we got to find a way, right? Yeah, got to find a way to get this song recorded. We got to find a way to help this person get a record deal. You know, mm-hmm. we've got to fi- just we've got to find a way. There's many ways to skin a cat, and you know, let me keep turning the block around to try to fit the square peg in the in the in the round hole until I can figure out how to do it. You know, and and I think that kind of attitude um, is, is is the winning right attitude in this business. Absolutely. And you guys do a lot of A&R now, you know, which was tra- traditionally done by the record labels is now done by the big publishers. There's not, we don't have a lot of record labels in, in country. You know, there's no just a handful that really produce the majority of the successful artists in the whole market. Right. So when you look at that universe, you're like, okay, I can, I can pitch this artist to, you know, really probably 10 or less situations. So it's about fit. It's about finding the, you know, the right team on the other side, because that's the thing, like, I'll be very clear as a publisher, like we're just, we're just one aspect of the team. Right. And so I look at it like any project that we work on, it's team building. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's every piece of the team from the, the manager to the business manager, to the booking agent, to the record label, to the producer, to really kind of everyone that's, around because each of those functions are so critical if if you don't have all of them operating at a high level it, it there's a really good chance it's not going to work it's it's a very very I, I think uh younger artists and writers may not fully appreciate uh how difficult it is to break an artist in in, in any genre yeah it's, and then and then the thing people don't think about is okay so now you've necessarily so you're now you now we're talking like you're the artist right let's say you've had your hit You've had your first hit. Let's say it actually went number one. Mm-hmm. Now what? 
Exactly. <laughs> right. It doesn't ever get easy. Nope. And, and I think that's the, that's the, maybe the lesson um, to some of the audience, they need to really understand that. Like there's not a part of this process that's mm-hmm. easy. So you have to love what you're doing and you have to love the details and the, the daily grind of it. If you, if you don't love the grind, it, you don't need to do it. I mean, you know, because there's not a spot where you, anybody, if you're the artist or if you're a successful writer, where you, where you can just stop unless you just want to just get out of the business. I mean, that's a choice, right? But if you want to stay in like every, every part of the process is, is, is challenging. Uh, that is so great, Ben. I'm letting that sink in because that is so great. You're right. And it's true for all of us in this thing, all of us. You have to love the nitty gritty of this, the day to day, the inside baseball, all the, the little components, and it's got to light you up or you're just not going to have the motivation to carry the ball across the goal line. It's not going to be there. It's that hard. Yep. And, and when the great thing about that is if you do love it, then you'll always have a reason to do it. I think that's such great advice, man. I think, I don't think we're going to top that. So we're going to, I think that'll finish us out. That's really good. Well, Ben Vaughn, thank you so much for your time. And hey, Chris, I want to say thank you too, because one, one more historical Chris Lindsay story. Okay. Okay. All right. Because I got to be on national television because of you. How so? Um, when you won song of the year for a yep. and there was a large group <laughs> of, of publishers and, and the new wonderful writers that ascended the stage in Los Angeles at the ACM awards. And we were all up there and I was in my twenties and mm-hmm. uh, I was on television and my mother could see me. I was on television. That was exciting. Um, and as a, and as a side note, that big group of people going to that stage is one of the reasons that that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. It takes a long time for all of them to get up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were watching it a couple of weeks ago. Amy wanted to show our daughter Lola. I don't know if you remember it, but Amy was about eight months pregnant with Levi. I do. And she was jumping up and down. And I remember Dolly Parton yelling at her, you're shaking the baby too much. And uh, from the side, and uh, cause she was going nuts, you know, Amy's nuts. Um, and she, we were showing Lola the other night and I do remember seeing you there. That was, that was an amazing magical time. It was so great. Well, thanks for the invitation, Chris. I really appreciate it. And Hey man, thank you for your time. I think everyone's really going to enjoy your take and you've been very gracious to give us honest insights and I really appreciate it. Okay, man. We'll talk to y'all soon. It's Chris Lindsay from Pitch List. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For more exclusive content from this week's guest and more, you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.